Up now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is sherri and we are the hosts of Molotov.net. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. This week, we sit down with organizers from the upcoming Dual Power Gathering Midwest, taking place in Chicago from August 17th to the 21st. As the third such gathering in two years, this event builds on the legacy and knowledge gained from the previous iterations. This episode serves as connecting tissue between the West and Midwest events to analyze and critique our own practices and organizing methods. We hope that if our listeners are in the area or can make the trip, they plan to attend the gathering this August. Information can be found at dpgmidwest.org. We will discuss organizing tactics, event needs, and more. Hopefully these dual power gatherings serve to build the alternative structures that we will need as the capitalist system collapses around us. From the ashes of the old, the new shall rise. We also have an extended news section today, with an interview with anti-fascists in Oregon City who helped organize a successful community defense to threats made on the Oregon City Pride event, the first such event in the city. We're also going to share the debut of our revised newsletter, The Communique, featuring upcoming events and local news updates. When we return, we'll be going over our radical news roundup, but in the meantime, here's a message from our sponsors. You're listening... Sobo Cats here with a selection of news updates from the alleys. After a series of garbage cans were toppled, humans have begun to blame the cats. But we know the real culprit is the raccoons. Yes, while some blame the raccoons, we also know that if humans simply left the food on the port, none of this would happen. Humans held their annual Late Up the Alleys event again this month. So the alleyways are free again? Hooray! The old lady on Broadway has begun handing out some flavored treats again, stop by any time. It's that time of year again. to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. 
This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Salagi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to ChannelZeroNetwork.com to find out more. Welcome back to Molotov Now. By way of local news, we bring you an audio version of our revised newsletter, The Communique, available on our website. First up is upcoming events. Saturday, August 5th, starting at 3 p.m., there is a block party at the Black Lives Matter Memorial Garden in Cal Anderson Park in Seattle. Capitol Hill Mutual Aid will be holding a street party fundraiser for their distro featuring Sister Wives Sex Strike, John D. Reveler, TIT, Free Tampons, Florida Man, and Desmandria Sound System. Come out for food, drinks, zines, and more. No one turned away for lack of funds. Take what you need, pay what you can. Saturday, August 19th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Sabotage Noise Productions presents a benefit show for Queer Satanic at Left Bank Books, 92 Pike Street, Seattle, Washington. Performing at the benefit show, supporting our queer satanic friends on the 19th are Molotov Juicebox, Dead Sonics, and Hurry Up Snufkin. Saturday and Sunday, August 26th and 27th, the Seattle Anarchist Book Fair is taking place at The Vera Project from 11 to 5. Expect books, friends, childcare, zines, talks, enemies, workshop, art, and food. Visit sab.info for more information. On Wednesday, July 2nd, at 3 p.m., in front of the National Indian Child Welfare Association in Portland, Oregon, comrades will be gathering to respect tribal sovereignty and hashtag bring Chanel home. Please bring signs with this slogan. If you can, wear blue and white in honor of Chanel's tribe. We need everyone who can make it to make it. Please share on all chats and socials. Now for local news updates. Anti-group feeding ordinance gets first discussion. The city of Aberdeen held the first discussion of their proposed anti-group feeding ordinance on June 14th. Concerns were raised by those in attendance as well as those on the council about the proposed ordinance and the effect it will have on those seeking to feed the unhoused in town. The draft ordinance and the open letter to the city of Aberdeen written by the Harbor Rat Report can be found on our website at sabomedia.noblogs.org. But essentially, it forces anyone seeking to bring resources to the homeless to have to apply for a permit two days in advance or face a $250 fine for the first offense and $500 thereafter, all while being banned from applying for such permit for a full year should they find any fault with it. Among the concerns the city seeks to address with this ordinance is the trash accumulated by people dumping unwanted stuff at camp, 
a legitimate phenomenon to be sure. But in seeking to curb illegal dumping, which is already illegal based on current laws, they have come up with something that targets those bringing actual resources into the unhoused. They have no ability to see that the two are different problems. In fact, the community development director said as much when he mentioned that most of what they throw away is raw chicken, something Food Not Bombs would never serve at a meal. They speak of raw food in particular when they only ever bring prepared foods. We never leave food behind because we never have leftovers because the need is so great, say Food Not Bombs volunteers. Again, the city is being led off course by the far-right members of the council and the mayor. They are attempting to mask their targeting of the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network and Food Not Bombs by pointing out a very real problem they've created and then developing this ordinance which attacks those trying to aid the community, not illegal dumpers, who won't apply for such a permit. It is also of note that the fee schedule for their new vacant buildings ordinance imposes a smaller fine on large and wealthy property owners than it does on individuals serving the unhoused food. They say, why not come join us and make it better? Well, we say, why not come join organizers in the street where the unhoused live? Go to a community meal and see for yourself what goes on there instead of listening to scary reports from the local fascists. They admit that they won't be able to catch everyone who illegally dumps down there, but Councilmember Ellis brought up the point that Aberdeen doesn't even currently enforce its own nuisance laws on trash. As the mayor says, rotten food four inches thick in the bottom of someone's tent does not result from illegal dumping or insufficient charity. If they aren't looking to penalize anyone for trying to feed the homeless, then why is there such a steep penalty built into the ordinance? ACLU and the City Council the escalating harassment of Aberdeen's unhoused population has been increasing in growth since long before the 2019 lawsuit against the city of Aberdeen for the illegal sweep of a long-standing homeless encampment earlier that year that stated that the city needed to find adequate shelter for the unhoused. In a similar fashion as led up to the 2019 lawsuit, the ongoing violations of civil and constitutional rights of the impoverished have caught the attention of the Washington chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU Washington. On June 28, 2023, LaRond Baker, legal director, and Susie Lake, staff attorney at the ACLU Washington, contacted the Aberdeen City Council via email bringing to attention their concerns that implementing various policies will unfairly target, punish, and harm the unhoused population in Aberdeen and will open the city to further litigation. We will look at their letter, the follow-up response sent over two weeks later by City Administrator Ruth Clemens, and give our own commentary as well. The letter to the city begins. Dear Aberdeen City Council members, we write today because the ACLU of Washington has received certain concerns from constituents about three policies and ordinances that target unhoused individuals residing in Aberdeen. Specifically, we received concerns about the enforcement of and proposed changes to Ordinance 8.08 regarding shopping carts, proposed Ordinance 8.15, originally titled Group Feedings, and then changed to Charitable Goods and Food Distribution, and the Use of Security Cameras Policy. The ACLU is equally as concerned as many of your constituents that implementing these policies will unfairly target, punish, and harm the unhoused population in Aberdeen and will welcome legal challenges. Aberdeen's confiscation of unhoused individuals' personal property is problematic. Aberdeen's current targeting of unhoused individuals' possessions kept in shopping carts likely implicates constitutional rights of the unhoused. We understand the city has confiscated individuals' belongings in shopping carts, not only at the library, but also throughout the city without adequate notice and opportunity to reclaim their possessions. 
Constituents report that local libraries allow unhoused individuals inside to escape the elements, which means they must leave shopping carts with their belongings outside temporarily, and that when they do, the city often seizes the carts and all of the unhoused person's belongings contained therein. There are a number of concerning issues with this practice. The first is that under the ordinance's broad sweep, the city is likely confiscating shopping carts that have not, in fact, been abandoned. There is little information as to what happens to the shopping carts or the contents after the city confiscates them and how an individual could recover their belongings taken with a cart. The proposed changes to this nuisance ordinance focuses solely on the responsibility of businesses to contain and retrieve their shopping carts and is silent on what happens to the contents or property of the unhoused that is within the carts. Even if Aberdeen gives notice to the unhoused individuals, there will be issues sorting through personal property that could trigger additional constitutional concerns, as belongings are likely to be inspected and discarded without the appropriate procedures and processes in place. The city response was, Dear Miss Baker and Miss Lake, The city of Aberdeen is in receipt of your letter. Emailed Aberdeen City Council on June 28, 2023. Your letter included concerns expressed by constituents about three policies and ordinances that are described as targeting unhoused individuals residing in Aberdeen. I have been asked to provide a response on behalf of the Aberdeen City Council to these concerns. I will address them according to your bolded statements within your letter. Quote, Aberdeen's confiscation of the unhoused individual's personal property is problematic. The city collects abandoned shopping carts throughout the city. These carts are unaccompanied and found strewn throughout our downtown district. Regarding the city's public library, our need to remove the carts from the front of the library arose from a health and safety concern. There have been upwards of 20 carts parked in front of the library. The carts block the sidewalks, the book drops, the bike racks, and entrance. We provided ample legal notification prior to removal. Safeway representatives were present, wanting their carts back. Only one individual showed up with a couple shopping carts the morning of enforcement and was asked if he would remove his items from the cart, to which he responded he did not want the items and the city could throw everything away. Out of an abundance of caution, we opted to hold his things for the required 60-day period. We gave him a card with a number to call if he wanted to retrieve his items. The individual was in possession of a phone with cell service. The city also provided a document that had contact information, the list of items we are obligated to hold on to, and we went above and beyond the listed items, and the holding period. The city has followed all guidance provided by our Corporation Council. Our Commentary The city is trying to use one anecdotal experience in order to brush aside the hundreds of complaints that we have heard about the city's theft of personal property, whether at encampment sweeps or individuals in the downtown corridor being robbed by city workers because they thought their stuff was trash. The city is attempting to narrow the focus of the complaint and respond to that narrow focus, because addressing what the ACLU actually brought up would be damning to the city. See, the ACLU is bringing up a concern that the constitutional rights of the unhoused might be infringed upon, because people still have the Fourth Amendment protections against searches and seizures by the government even if they are unhoused, as established by State v. Pippin. In fact, they enjoy all the same constitutional rights as anyone does. It just so happens that they get infringed upon much more frequently in this case. The city cannot address this main concern, as what they are doing is likely unconstitutional and certainly immoral and disgusting. The city clearly doesn't understand the unhoused community or their response to threats like being given legal notice to move. They are going to avoid any interaction they can with the city or police, even if that means surrendering their belongings to the dump instead of fighting for them. The city always refuses to recognize the power imbalances at play in this relationship. Moving on to the next point raised in the email, the ACLU said about the proposed anti-group feeding ordinance. 
Aberdeen's proposed food distribution policy unfairly targets unhoused individuals and the social service programs that serve them. The City of Aberdeen is considering implementing a revised Ordinance 8.15, which would impose a fine on any individuals or organizations that feed unhoused individuals in a public place without first seeking a permit. As written, this ordinance only applies to individuals and organizations who, quote, distribute goods and food to the unsheltered. If these individuals and organizations do not follow the proposed ordinance, they are subjected to harsh penalties. For example, organizations who submit application for a group feeding permit through individuals with those individuals disclosing their association with the organization will be subject to being precluded from receiving a group feeding permit for a period of up to 12 months. Additionally, a violation of this ordinance carries a $250 penalty for a first violation violation and a $500 fine for each subsequent violation. The ordinance outlines that repeat violations may mean that the repeat offender is precluded from receiving group feeding permits for a period of up to 12 months. In similar factual scenarios, courts have found that distributing food to unhoused individuals on public property constitutes expressive activity subject to First Amendment protections. The ACLU is concerned that if Aberdeen implements and enforces this proposed ordinance, such action will likely infringe upon First Amendment protected activity. To which the city replied, The intention of this ordinance is to address the massive health and safety issues we have at two large homeless encampments within our city limits. Well-intentioned people and organizations deliver boxes upon boxes of food, bags of clothing, and used furniture to these areas without any real understanding if people are in need at that point in time. They drop food off in a manner that is disorganized and not responsive to actual need, based on the amount of excess food, clothes, and goods that the city throws away on a weekly basis. This type of giving needs to be conducted in a coordinated manner to ensure that the unhoused people are receiving care in an effectively compassionate manner. The city upholds the belief that unhoused individuals need to be fed, clothed, and supported. We are proud that our community provides these comforts well beyond any other city in our economically disadvantaged county. The trash and waste have become so excessive that the businesses located in those parts of our downtown district are unable to conduct business. The excess trash in this location is not only a safety and health hazard, but is also detrimental to our fragile economy. We have invited groups that oppose the ordinance to sit down with the city and discuss how to improve the ordinance while balancing the rights, health, and safety of other constituents that live and share these spaces. We have designed this legislation based on the guidance of our corporate council. Our Commentary In actuality, the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network's chapter of Food Not Bombs have not received any such invitation from the city to talk about improving the ordinance. If they are concerned with the trash dumping, then they should feel free to enforce those ordinances that already exist. What the Mutual Aid Network in town offers is a full-fledged meal where tables, chairs, hygiene supplies, harm reduction supplies, and clothing are brought in and then removed upon leaving. Each meal has trash containers and hand-washing stations, and they even participate in cleaning up the rest of the property they feed on while there. They leave nothing of their own waste, and often leave with more trash than they generated. When they depart from the meals, all they leave are full bellies and fulfilled needs. The city, however, will continue to target group feedings such as this regardless, and would blame them for every bit of trash generated when those meals are not being held. They communicate and discuss constantly what needs there are and how best to fill them, as this is their belief, as is ours at Sabo Media, namely, solidarity, not charity. The network doesn't propose to know what the unhoused need and bring it to them as a charity might. We ask what they need and then work together to fill those needs to the best of our ability. 
All the work is done by volunteers who are fully a part of the community they labor for. Again, the city has not addressed the ACLU's main concern, which is, as always, constitutional rights. As they mention, many other Food Not Bombs chapters have experienced similar city repression, and the courts have repeatedly found that such feeds are constitutionally protected First Amendment behavior. We and other Food Not Bombs are engaged in political activity, not charitable donations. The idea that the city would become the arbiter of what the unhoused need and how to obtain those things is beyond the pale, especially when you consider all these new draconian ordinances are being put forth by supposedly small government Republicans on city council and the mayor. Yet, they seek to regulate the most basic of human behaviors, eating together. Finally, we come to the security camera policy. Quote, Aberdeen's proposed surveillance policy unfairly targets unhoused individuals. Aberdeen is installing a series of CCTV cameras throughout the city for, quote, public safety and security purposes, and to protect the physical integrity of the city infrastructure and resources. Many unhoused individuals have no option but to sleep outside with the installation of these CCTV cameras. Their every movement may be captured. This could further subject them to increased interactions with law enforcement and involvement in the criminal system for simply having no other place to go. Additionally, while the intent may be to focus on the unhoused population in Aberdeen, this level of surveillance will impact everyone in Aberdeen and subject all citizens to a troubling culture of surveillance of their personal activities. Ultimately, these ordinances and policies punish the unhoused individuals for their status of being homeless. The proposed and current policies and ordinances outlined herein will exacerbate the already dire circumstances of many of the people experiencing homelessness in Aberdeen. Washington is facing a housing crisis that has forced multitudes of people to live in tents and other makeshift shelters on public property in order to survive. The members of this vulnerable population are in need of well-resourced support, but instead these policies threaten them with ostracization as well as deprivation of their personal property and necessary resources for their survival. These policies, coupled with a culture of surveillance, would effectively drive unhoused individuals from the community, taking the houseless and making them homeless. We hope that you heed the concerns of your constituents in the ACLU of Washington and reconsider these policies. Sincerely, LaRon Baker, Legal Director, Susie Lake, Staff Attorney, the ACLU of Washington. The city's response was, Aberdeen's proposed surveillance policy unfairly targets unhoused individuals. The city of Aberdeen's downtown district has been hit hard by copper wire theft. The city is facing a drug crisis no different than any other large city across the nation. As the largest city in Grace Harbor, we have been hit hard by theft, vandalism, drug overdoses, stolen vehicles, and most recently, attempted kidnapping. When these types of crimes hit small, poor communities like ours, we do not bounce back as easily as our large counterparts in King and Pierce counties. The installation of our two cameras will be strategically placed to protect the privacy of our residents. The goal of the camera is deterrence. Cameras will be placed in public where there is no expectation of privacy, and the city will place signs to advise of the cameras. The camera footage will be soundless and will not be monitored live, but will be reviewed should criminal activity be identified. The city has and will adopted or adopt policies to ensure compliance with the law. Ultimately, these ordinances and policies punish the unhoused individuals for the status of being homeless. We understand your position on our city's ordinances and policies, and I can assure you that our small, economically disadvantaged city is implementing and exercising the same legislation that our larger counterparts in King and Pierce County have included in their repertoire of laws and codes. These ordinances are designed to protect and benefit our underprivileged, underserved community 
and allow us to appropriately serve our unhoused community. Our city is plagued by trash, vacant buildings, homelessness, drug addiction, untreated mental health issues, and poverty. And the mayor and city council are taking a more active role in finding balanced solutions to these critical issues. These issues have gone unaddressed for far too long, and these ordinances are needed to bring balance to our community, where everyone can feel safe in our downtown district, whether they are housed, unhoused, or visiting our city. Our Commentary How do these ordinances make the unhoused feel safer in the downtown district? Let's consider this as we read the words of the city claiming that these ordinances are designed to balance the needs of everyone. Are they? They are written explicitly to target the unhoused and limit their resources and to benefit the, quote, fragile economy. This belies their real concerns, namely the planned gentrification of the area. The city wants desperately to, quote, drive the unhoused from the community. When they speak of reducing the numbers of homeless people on the streets, they mean through eradication, not housing. The city refuses to engage the ACLU on the terms of their concerns, rather deflecting blame to economic woes or other larger jurisdictions with similarly horrible laws. This excuse does nothing to address the underlying reason why the ACLU contacts you. Constitutional rights. That's their whole thing, and yet the city hasn't responded to any of their concerns set forth in the letter, other than to claim that they are advised by corporate counsel. The city is very familiar with being sued, and if they are not careful going forward, it appears the ACLU has their eye on them. It would be fitting that the city would be sued twice in so few years over the mistreatment of the unhoused. The city continues... Our next goal is to provide a low-barrier shelter. The mayor has tasked a work group, the Homelessness Response Committee, to create and implement a strategy to solve homelessness and address the impacts of homelessness on our community. The HRC is actively building a community-informed strategy that includes the following. 1. Release a survey to our community on homelessness and the impacts to our community and local businesses. We received over 800 responses. 2. Hosted over six community discussions to gather more feedback. One discussion dedicated to the unhoused community. More sessions to come included faith institutions, social services, and local governments. Three, work with Grace Harbor County to purchase a piece of property as a future site for a low-barrier homeless shelter with coordinated services. And four, the City of Aberdeen provides funding to nonprofit caseworker organizations that work directly with the unhoused community. This is to name a few of the important things that the HRC has accomplished. Thank you for the opportunity to provide a response to your letter, and I appreciate your work in defending and preserving the individual rights and liberties of people. I believe we share similar interests in making Aberdeen a place where all people can thrive. Please feel free to contact me directly at 360-537-3233 or at rclemens at aberdeenwa.gov. Sincerely, Ruth Clemens, the City Administrator for the City of Aberdeen. Boy, howdy, where to start with this one? First of all, the current city council members organized the very campaign that brought an end to the federally funded low-barrier shelter proposed by Chaplains on the Harbor last year. The city has always claimed no authority or responsibility since the county is responsible for homeless issues. Despite this, they routinely have gotten involved to the detriment of the unhoused and the taxpayers who have to foot the resulting legal bills. For the city to claim to want a low-barrier shelter now is a day late and a dollar short. People died on the streets while that proposed shelter could have saved them. That blood is forever on their hands, especially the county commissioners who made the actual vote. But we will not forget the hand that Aberdeen City Council and Mayor had in that decision, as well as the decision to refuse an emergency cold-weather shelter all last winter. 
Second, the city thinks that their HRC can somehow solve homelessness with this top-down, heavy-handed approach is laughable. Their so-called discussion with the unhoused was only one of six sessions, most of which focused on the business community, and it was attended by a total of three unhoused individuals. Not exactly a good turnout. When wondering how to increase the communication with the unhoused people themselves, apparently no one considered going down there themselves to talk to them like people. Why would anyone attend a meeting for a committee they know has been formed for the benefit of the business community and to target them for eradication? The current strategy leaves them with no voice when they should be at the lead of any decision affecting them. The grassroots collective that is formed around providing permanent low-barrier shelter, housing, and social services, the Black Flower Collective, has been pushing for grassroots-led solutions to these issues recently. When reached for comment, the Black Flower Collective stated that, quote, they have received zero outreach or support from the city, despite working towards the same supposed goals as the city and county, end quote. It is because the city wants to be in complete control over the site selection, the services administered, and the overall functioning of the facility. They want to run an open-air prison, a work camp for the poor. They fear the liberation that an entity like Blackflower represents to the lives of those suffering on the streets. The idea that people can determine what they need and how to get it, without the need for representatives and hierarchies, is outside their lived experiences, and directly threatens their status quo. The status quo where some people sit on city council seats while others sleep in tents, ten feet away from the train tracks. If the city wants to help the unhoused, then get the fuck out of the way. Council member Casey Ann Morrison loses her shit on Maine. In a recent article, Aberdeen City Council member Casey Ann Morrison was called out by the local paper, The Daily World, for her upsetting and dangerous posts blaming the alleged destruction of some campaign signs on a multitude of people in the community, including her political opponents. The article focused on the likely defamatory and slanderous pissed-off rant post made on her public Facebook page. The original post made the assumption that the local mutual aid network had been in coordination with our media outlet to destroy their campaign signs. Casey Ann also attempted to dox multiple people in her post. The Daily World article mentions that they have tried to reach her for comment twice, but to no avail. But she did delete the post after their first request. So apparently she is regretful for having posted it publicly, as opposed to screaming it into her pillow like usual. Oh god. With people calling for a removal from office given this atrocious lack of judgment and possible criminal behavior, we shall see how this stunt goes for this longtime local hate group leader turned politician. Screenshots of the posts are available in the newsletter on our website. The article focuses largely on new city council hopeful Sidney Newbill and mayoral candidate Deanne Shaw, whose signs were not destroyed, leading to the wild conspiracy theories from right-wingers in Casey Ann's orbit. On June 19th, current Aberdeen City Councilor Casey Ann Morrison made strong claims on her personal Facebook profile about a woman who was running for Aberdeen City Council after several campaign signs were destroyed. The claims targeted Sydney Renee Newbill, who is running for Aberdeen's Ward 6, Position 12, and current Aberdeen City Councilor Deanne Shaw, who represents Ward 6, Position 12. Morrison says in her screed, It appears to be culprits from the same group as all other instances of vandalism thus far. It is very targeted. Cliché, criminal, anarchist, antifa, chic. All in black. It is though she knows who committed these acts. With zero evidence to back up her claims, she then rattles off her most wanted list of people whom she has identified as being antifa. And also take notice, for those who view the screenshot on our website how they make a list of the things that these culprits have either said and or done in the same list. 
It serves to leave it to her audience to decide what crimes these people have supposedly committed, rather than her be accountable to any more direct false accusations. She uses misrepresentations of content from our colleagues at Aberdeen Local 1312 as the only flimsy source of evidence to support the heavy accusations of, as they have called in previous posts about her own signs being destroyed last year, terrorism. Aberdeen Local 1312 is a meme page that makes and shares anti-capitalist and anarchist content. As a part of the Sabo Media Collective, they assist the individual projects in our media collective by signal-boosting our projects through their social media presence, saving the rest of us the labor of maintaining individual social media accounts. This attempt to spread misinformation by making a meme page whose sole purpose is to shitpost on the internet, evidence of some mass conspiracy connecting grassroots organizations, nonprofits, politicians, and private citizens, is troubling conspiratorial behavior at best and malicious defamation with intent to harm at worst. However, her vain attempt to get someone hurt has backfired in her face apparently, as even the Daily World has taken notice of her bullshit, and we here at Sabo Media will continue to keep you updated on her descent into madness. Daily World's coverage of candidates. Election season is underway again, and here in Aberdeen, that means a mayoral run. This season is being contested by three candidates, all of whom want similar things for Aberdeen, but believe that they and they alone are the one capable of bringing a solution to bear for us. The Daily World recently talked to all three and published an article detailing the candidates' desires and plans, while not detailing so much as summarizing, but no one ever gets into great detail in these smaller races. Slogans serve the purpose just fine. As pointed out in our Aberdeen Anti-Voters Guide, available on our website, all the local candidates for mayor have the same goal for Aberdeen, a gentrified, heavily policed surveillance state. Even the coverage of these people in the daily world calls attention to the strong similarities between the candidates. Let's look at it now. Doug Orr. Why is Orr running for Aberdeen mayor? Quote, I've been active in our city for about 10 years now, Orr said. I believe the time has come for Aberdeen to take its place as a destination city in Grace Harbor. Our collective years of mourning the losses of our past has gotten us nowhere. The time to stop tearing down our history isn't over. Or double down on that last line with what could be a campaign slogan nominee. The time for a plan of action is now. The time for a leader who thinks of you, the people, first is now, Or said. The time for a leader with a clear vision and a path to get there is way past due. Or said he believes his unique set of skills and experiences are what Aberdeen needs to pull itself up, quote, out of its doldrums and set it on a new path to sustainable success. It's evident from his strong words that Orr loves the city. Aberdeen is the powerhouse and heart of Grace Harbor, Orr said, and it's time we started to act like it. Debbie Ann Piracini why is Piracini running for Aberdeen mayor? Quote, I am running for mayor to help lead our city in the economic growth that is destined for our area and to play a bigger role in helping to find a solution to the homelessness issue that is plaguing not only our community, but the nation as a whole, Piracini said. I believe that we can do better. We are coming into an exciting time for Aberdeen as we embark on a levy project, the museum project, and the railway separation project. We have a great opportunity to lead in infrastructure growth with fiscal responsibility. Deanne Shaw. Why is Shaw running for Aberdeen mayor? Quote, My campaign has three areas of focus, Shaw said. Illegal camping and hopelessness, drug enforcement, and infrastructure development. We are on the cusp of reinventing our economy, Shaw said back in May. More than $72 million is slated to be invested in our community over the next several years. The North Shore Levee, the Railway Separation Project, and a new bridge. And I want to be in the strongest position possible to support these projects. This is not counting the $18 million Fry Creek project currently underway in our West End. 
Shaw said that with the funds secured for the above projects, the work has just begun. These three see the coming wave of wealth headed our way, should we continue on this road towards gentrification, and want to, quote, clean up the city to attract that new wealth. They are paving the way for developers to do the real work of gentrification, forcing the current low-income residents of the harbor out through high rents and higher costs of living. All three are willing to profit from and trample on the memory of Kurt Cobain, who grew up in Aberdeen and left because of the hateful politics that led to the ostracization he felt within the city. The city is taking a heavy-footed approach in their starting steps towards their gentrification process by pressing their boot against the houseless populations. Should they succeed in eradication of the homeless populations, how long until their policies translate into property rates and rents rising until the original families that make up our community are priced out and left for the streets? Monthly Radical News Roundup It's time for our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized educational 501c3 nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. July 2nd, Stop Cop City Week of Action Day 8, Youth Rally, Atlanta Police Vehicles Torched. July 2nd, protests erupt across Florida as Senate Bill 1718 goes into effect. July 5th, banners drop for Isaac Aden at Bloomington's July 4th celebration. July 6th, limited funds stunt Minnesota's conviction review unit. Families want expediency. July 7th, 17 Palestinians killed during massive Israeli raids on Janine. July 7th, the Neighborhoods Communication Department, Confluence Studios Print Shop. July 10th. Unicorn Riot X means TV. July 12th, Nazis of Color. July 12th, Remembering Paul Castaway, Killed by Denver Police. July 14th, Exclusive, Tickle Sunderberg's parents recall the moment snipers from the Minneapolis police executed their son. July 15th, Will the Gulf of Guinea ever be free of piracy? July 17th, we won the move. Minneapolis council member celebrates after community thwarts plans for old third precinct site. July 18th. Bolsonaro ineligible to run for office until 2030. July 19th. Tijuana groups protest border wall construction at Friendship Park. July 21st. Greek seas. Europe's largest migrant cemetery. July 24th. Shabbat, Syria. Survival is resistance. July 24th. Enbridge ordered to shut down Line 5 and pay Bad River Ban $5.1 million. July 26th, Indigenous climate activist Victor Puertas remains in custody despite no indictment. July 26th, the tower has fallen, a win for Brixton's anti-gentrification movement. It's going down, and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting. It's Going Down as a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. June 18th. Turf rally in Pittsburgh surrounded and shouted down. June 18th. Final straw. Updates on the struggle to stop Cop City. June 19th. 
Neo-Nazis blocked and kicked out a Pride celebration in Chico, California. June 19th, System Fail Number 23, Life Over Lithium. June 21st, Reflections on the Campaign Against the Turning Point USA and Blexit event in New York City. June 22nd, When Forest Defenders Are Under Attack, People Everywhere Will Fight Back. June 26th, Report Back from Anti-Fascist Mobilization in Linwood, Washington. June 26th, Community Confronts Neo-Nazis and Proud Boys Disrupting Kids Pride Event in Sacramento, California. June 26th, Notes from Atlanta Forest, Day 1 of the Week of Action. June 27th, Report from Eugene Rent Strike Eviction Defense. June 27th, Report from Day 2 of the Defend the Atlanta Forest Week of Action. June 29th, Support Peter, Kaniku, and other Cleveland organizers. June 29th, Report from Day 3 and 4 of the Defend the Atlanta Forest Week of Action. June 30th, Protesters target nationwide insurance over their connections to Atlanta's Cop City Project. July 2nd, Crisis of Their Own Legitimacy. Peter Gelderloos and Tom Nomad on the recent Trump indictment. July 2nd, report from day 5 and 6 of the Defend of the Atlanta Forest Week of Action. July 2nd, anti-fascists kick neo-Nazis out of Princeton, New Jersey. July 3rd, in contempt number 30, Dan Baker set to be released. Call in for Rashid Johnson. July 4th, system fail number 24, Pride and Prejudice. July 4th, gender fascist, Moms for Liberty conference, met with resistance in Philadelphia. July 5th, Eugene Community blockades Sierra Pacific Mill in protests of public lands logging. June 5th, Mountain Valley Pipeline Works site disrupted in Montgomery County of Vancouver. July 6th, Canadian Tire Fire Number 61, a win in the fight to stop deportations. Toronto rent strike grows. July 6th, report back on first week of eviction defense and blockade in Eugene. July 8th, final straw, continuing the struggle against the Mountain Valley Pipeline. July 10th, Capitalism is the tumor. Solidarity is our medicine. July 15th. People continue to take to the streets of San Francisco for Banco Brown. July 19th. Solidarity campaigned for the freedom and defense of Puente Madera. July 19th. Community gathers in Bremerton, Washington for Puget Sound Prisoner Support Benefit for June 11th. July 22nd. From Embers. Drag defense in Quebec. July 23rd. End the attacks against Puente Madera. Justice for Juan Cortez. July 24th, Fidencio Aldama, Freedom as a Bargaining Ship, Used by the Government. July 9th, Boise takes to the streets for Peyton Wasson and pushes back against Idaho Liberty Dogs. July 16th, There is no climate refuge except in each other, flooding and mutual aid in Vermont. July 21st, This is America number 188, Vishal Singh and Bloody Brawls Marking Pride in SoCal, Action Camp Kicks Off in Michigan. July 24th, in the end, the forest will triumph. A report from the Terrain Vogue in Montreal. Crime thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. Crime Think is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at crimethink.com. July 2nd, Justice for Nahel, the roots of the uprising in France. July 24th. Regarding the eviction of the self-organized refugee camp in Lavrio, Greece. How Turkey's war on Kurds and the European Union's war on migrants intersect. We are getting the cue that it's time for a musical break. When we return, we will be talking to two individuals from Vancouver and Portland who helped put on a successful Pride event in Oregon City. For now, here is Living in the End Times by Soul. Hit it!
We are here encountering a totally new situation where the traditional ethical prescriptions simply don't function. You cannot simply apply to this old wisdom. Every one of us has to become, in some sense, a philosopher here, with open mind approaching this difficult problem. In this problem. apocalypse, till the sun and oxygen a failed state, and the president got holy beasts watching them, I know I'm human, sovereign, I got DNAs and enzymes, south of Slavoj Zizek, we still living in end time, not some angry white bear, the sociopath, it's drone attacks, and gay bashing really God's wrath, Iowa caucuses make me wanna run for office, but uneducated populist is on the up and up, uh, I'd rather be gardening than saving the world, since the world don't want to be saved, let the motherfucker burn. All we need is water in the roof, don't need no proof. I'm a citizen of the late great planet Earth. Land of milk and honey, arsenic and empty purses. If what I write strike, what's a safer rapper spitting empty verses? On the verge of global holocaust, the rappers only want to talk about what they got. Lead the fans to sop it up, don't cry to me when it's lost and gone. We in a society of the spectacle, all you do is watch the throne. Who who gon' stop me? Who gon' stop me, huh? The rap Apache, you were lost without philosophy, huh? No money, most states sponsor homicide. When a nation kill itself, ain't no alibi. The left ain't got no spine. GOP has lost its mind. Everything is real, living in the end times. No money, most states sponsor homicide. When a nation kill itself, ain't no alibi. The left ain't got no spine. GOP has lost its mind. Everything is real. Living in the end times. Now we're forced to listen to nihilism, a form of violence. Cause pessimism's a silent killer, devoid of passion, backbone, in direction. The left been left behind. No thanks, it's in the hay, it's man made. Anyone who's a student of history knows a state becomes an empire, overreaches and implodes. Everything modest touch didn't turn to gold, it was gold before he came, and when he left, it was a void. Some say human beings are wiped out by tea. Middle class musicians were wiped out by MP3 Now it's major labels posing as indies Dropping mixtapes during fake buzz While most artists can't get their songs heard on blogs College radio died too I mean it's still there but we don't need it to find tunes Soul of Google, rapid share search away In the rap rapture, everything became free Your blood, your body, your food for dwindling state funds Like the way your mother spider devours its own young the Colorado, kind of feel like Poland's I never know when the cop is waiting with an infraction Truth be told, I should be working and give up on rapping These days you can't drop a forklift without a masters So I'm killing shit, humble, always hustling Virtual battlefield with post, postmodern, uh No money, most states sponsored homicide When a nation kill itself, ain't no alibi The left ain't got no spine GOP has lost its mind, everything is Real living in the end times. No money, most states sponsored homicide. When a nation kill itself, ain't no alibi. The left ain't got no spine. GOP has lost its mind. Everything is real living in the end times. We are approaching, sorry, just a situation where uh, we have capitalism, which is more efficient than Western liberal capitalism and which inherently no longer needs democracy. For me, the problem is not BP, British Petroleum. It might have happened to another company, probably. The problem is a more global one, our way of life, 
There are enormous challenges today, and it's ridiculous to think that we can solve them in this immediate, legal, moralistic way, find the culprits, and so on and so on. It's not a question of this, it's the question of changing the basic parameters of the system in the long term. Nuclear winter. All right. Welcome back to Molotov Now. We're joined here by two individuals who've been organizing for some time in the Portland and Vancouver area in order to defend their community from violent fascists. They recently put in some good work and helped to make sure the first Oregon City Pride Night went smooth and stayed safe after violent threats from FASH led up to it. It was that event where two FASH groups, Proud Boys and the Rose City Nationalists, had the brawl with each other and that was in thanks to anti-fascists helping keep them away from the event. They join us today to talk a little bit about the recent OC Pride event, the fascist threats against the local LGBTQ community, and the collective of anti-fascists who stepped up to defend the event. Would you all like to first introduce yourselves, give your pronouns, and any other relevant work you've been engaged in? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'm Ryan Dad, uh, a.k.a. Zachmo. He, they got started in uh, Vancouver uh, doing some organizing. So we just threw our big gay wedding, which was where we had five queer and trans couples married on the fourth day of a big hate conference in front of uh, Vancouver's Sure Foundation Baptist Church. At the Heathen Brewery after uh, Fast showed up the night before uh, the weekend before rather a drag brunch and shattered out their their windows of the establishment. So we put together counter protests for that. And we've been involved uh, now for a while in local school board meetings, library board of directors meetings, and uh, various pride walks, block parties, and flag waves, just providing community support out there, along with community defense. Always. Yeah, so that's really important. There ain't nobody else to do it, but, you know, we're the only shield. I feel like in that way, um, you know, as far as just, you know, the anti-fascist collective goes. Um, my name's Lexi Khan. Uh, she, her, Plenty of mutual aid. Um, currently been on the ground since June 2020. Was here when the feds came in Portland. Um, there for the 100th night on the ground, damn near every day. Um, Indigenous Day of Rage, all that. Uh, just been just been grinding this whole time, covering uh, police brutality, making sure we get cameras on them every time. They would attack protesters, you know, instigate violence making sure that we're always there, you know, uh, to defend our marginalized communities from fascists, you know, um, when they come, cause they're coming hard right now. Um, with the whole kind of in that re- reactionary, you know, conservative backlash, you know, uh, that one, that third Antifa arrow is uh, for anti-reactionary conservative, you know, cause that's why like, and we're, we're up in the middle of that, just like at the end of, or just kind of like at the, uh, that period after any big equity movement, you know? Um, so, we have to really, uh, we have to be really tight and unified right now. So uh, a lot of that, I've done a lot of, uh, you know, writing and um, journalism, covering columns as well as, you know, uh, police watch and and all that. And just staying, uh, just staying active in every way I can. Awesome. Thanks for that. So what first got you involved yeah. in anti-fascist organizing? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like you organize against fash or look the other way and be a collaborator, you know? Um, you either got, you got kind of like, you got to step up and defend your marginalized people. You got to step up when that tide is rising. You can't wait. You can't look the other way, you know, um, or it'll be too late when time gets here. You know, you have to, you have to meet them when that, when they first start coming, when you start, first start seeing those first signs. And, and we've been seeing the signs for a long time. You know, you have that question of like, 
I don't know, like when the Nazis took like um, France or, you know, Belgium, Poland, all the people that, you know, didn't do anything, you know, were the collaborators, you know, uh, are they to blame too? And, and I would say, yeah, you have that, you have to either uh, fight back on the ground right there for your homeland, for your home turf, or, you know, defend your people, or, you know, you, uh, you leave and you fight them from, you know, the best you can, you know, from, from where you're at, you know, in whatever way you can. But you can't just stay and look the other way. Yeah, I got. Uh, I, I've been doing mutual aid work for for a good, good minute. Um, you know, harm reduction, uh, uh, reaching out to our most yeah. vulnerable comrades, making sure that they've got you know the the gear that they need, and just just anything that they they could want, just to kind of make existence a, a little mm-hmm. more you know palatable for everybody. Um, but I really started organizing. Um, just this past March, when uh, when when this brewery got attacked, its windows got smashed out for holding the the drag brunch, and uh, I started asking, you know, all the comrades, like, all right, you know, who's putting something together? Where are we going? Who's showing up? And like, the answer was nobody, you know. So I uh, I started getting uh, involved here in in Vancouver, um, honestly, just because there was a lack of leftist organizing and and a lack of leftist organizing loudly in Vancouver. So mm-hmm. we can step in to fill that void. Yeah, thank you for that. Y'all filled it beautifully. Y'all, you've been putting in real good work. You know, the person who uh who brought, you know, uh Ride Daddy, that's Mo and I together, you know, um, they've seen me, you know, as you know, as someone these last few years who's who's willing to put their body on the line and shows up and, you know, just kinda support in, in every way I can. And uh, you know, since I've had my, you know, whatever medical issues and had to kind of just be, you know, whatever, just kind of itching to get back out there as soon as I can and just doing everything, you know, with my, uh, my work and my columns, journalism and support in every other way I can, like you've been doing amazing work. And I just want to say, you know, thank you. It was good to hear your voice tonight and be with y'all. Yeah. We covered that big gay wedding and, uh, we were inspired to see that action for sure. What's the situation mm-hmm. like with hate groups and hate churches in the region? Uh, you know, talking about Vancouver, it's 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 only getting worse. You know, um, we've got some other stuff in the works, though. Right. Uh, we can't we can't give out too much. Um, but, uh, you know, it's 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 pretty prevalent here. Uh, Vancouver has been a breeding ground for fascism and extremism for a minute since uh, Portland's been kicking fash out and running them back to this side of the bridge. Um, yep. So they're kind of setting up. I know that uh, today out in Olympia, they had. Uh, Sean Fucht guy, right, and his and his big religious movement out there today. Um, so we're we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing an awful lot of it, and it and it's scary, right? Um, they grow, they get more emboldened daily, um, and it's it's pivotal that we don't allow these guys to radicalize and mobilize, right? Fash are dangerous enough, but you add in a God given right or some feeling of religious duty and obligation, and it's just a hundred times more explosive. Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen a lot of people from the far right pick up that trend towards religion in the past couple months. That's their way to justify what they're doing. You know, it just becomes a way to justify their prejudice. You know, it doesn't have shit to really do with the religion, you know, um, you know, fuck organized religion and all that shit, you know. But, you know, it just becomes an excuse for these people. Churches represent all kinds of fucked up shit. Really uh, symbols of uh, colonization, you know, have uh, been really, really instrumental in oppressing, you know, marginalized groups, black and indigenous folks for in all kinds of walks of life, you know, since as far back as history goes. 
you know, uh, really just terrible shit, but you know. So as we mentioned, there was a fight between the Rose City Nationalists and the Proud Boys on the day of the event. Uh, what was the cause of that fight? So as far as I understand, like the direct cause was um, one of their members switching sides, you know. I think it was a, a Proud Boy that went to RCN or um, the other way around. Um, but uh, it was one of those. But I think like, the underlying cause was that they came there to incite violence against LGBTQ people and uh, anti-fascists that were there to defend them and they um, saw the numbers and saw how uh, ready we were, you know, like they want to look at us as uh, like, you know, snowflakes or whatever, you know, but they're scared, you know, they get scared of us. They, I mean, they didn't even come. I don't even think a single one of them walked within proximity of our people and their colors, you know? So when they couldn't incite violence against Kesha, any, uh, any anti-fascist slip in on the perimeter or whatever, or cause you know, staying in a group, get strong, stand together, stand tight, or, uh, you know, didn't want to test us. You know, they just died, uh, all that toxicity and fucking uh, violence just kind of directed it towards each other, you know? So that's kind of like an underlying more subconscious kind of thing. Do you think that's about, uh, what do you think about that brawl? Right? Yeah, so, that- yeah. So like, you know, uh, Casey Knudsen, uh, uh, used to, to run with all of those cats and the Proud Boys and, you know, do some to internal beef. He left and he started his little nationalist club. Um, so for sure, a lot of it, a lot of it comes from, from that animosity. But, but I think, you know, Lexi said it the best, you know, both sides showed up for some shit and, you know, they drove by the event. They saw everyone out there, you know, in gray block, you know, they saw some folks carrying, they saw some folks carrying openly. Um, and ultimately, uh, they decided it wasn't worth it to start shit there. So they drove back to the original spot where pride was to be held. Uh, and it's like a mile away, you know, and that allowed them to set up, that allowed them to posture, that allowed them to get great footage of themselves flying flags and being patriots and, you know, their camaraderie, uh, you know, it looked great. Um, but then Rose City Nationalists showed up and, and kind of screwed it up. Um, and, and they got into that brawl. I will say though, I mean, immediately after that brawl, um, the Proud Boys took to their, uh, Portland Proud Boys took to the Portland Proud Boys Telegram channel and immediately started saying things like, you know, fuck the Talmud and, you know, making anti-Semitic jokes and, and dropping anti-Semitic slurs. Um, so, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Like this wasn't, you know, them fighting RCN because they're a bunch of fucking Nazis. This is them fighting RCN. Um, because they're a bunch of petulant children who, you know, got made a fool of by a bunch of like anti-fascists and they didn't want to show up and start a bunch of stuff in their colors um, and look to be the bad guys in front of a community that was just out there having a good time and having fun. Mm. You know, and that's that's so true. You know, like I never really made the distinction between Proud Boys and neo-Nazis. I stopped calling them Proud Boys and just, you know, in most of my most of my writing, I just referred to them as neo-Nazis after a certain point. You know, I don't think there's really a distinction between the two, you know, and it was sickened, by the way, you know, uh, like, you know, whatever Oregon City's main newspaper, you know, uh, it covered them, um, covered it like uh, like they were a counter-protest, you know, to the neo-Nazis or something. Like, it, it's right-leaning. It's not a surprise, you know, but a lot of, a lot of media coverage kind of sort of uh, portrayed it that way. Yeah, which is just disgusting. Anybody who's been out, you know, these are the same goons who've been showing up to these 
you know, uh, trying to incite violence, you know, against marginalized people and at, uh, you know, demonstrations against police violence or whatever, you know, when, uh, one of, uh, someone in our community gets killed, got killed by a cop, you know, they, uh, I mean, Kevin Peterson, you know, Kevin Peterson Jr., you know, went up to Vancouver near Turk, you know, uh, right at his edge when, uh, when he was murdered and we went and marched about 2000 deep through Vancouver. And that night they ran over his memorial, you know, he had his family, his family was out there breathing hard, you know, and there, there was candles. There was like a massive, like beautiful dedication to him, you know, Vancouver PD shot this kid in the back when he was running the other way. And that's usually, usually how they do, you know, there was no threat. They were under no threat of violence. Nobody else was, you know, um, and, you know, they came to showed up at a memorial, you know, to try to start shit, you know, and, and they do it from a distance. There was 2000 of us. So they wait till they try to catch people slipping. You know, they uh, drive around the outskirts and try yeah, to, like, you know, maze people when they're like, you know, go walk into their cars or whatever. And it was rough and it was violent. It was a uh, it was, it was. It was, it was a scary event um, you know? to think that, you know, they fought these neo-Nazis just because they disagree with their ideology is 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 not the case. And I think everybody that knows what these two groups are about, you know, knows that. But, you know, to touch on Lexi's point, that's that's why we're here, you know, speaking with you folk is, you know, we had a beautiful thing going on. We we threw this thing together, right? Uh, I say we, I mean, everyone uh, threw this thing together in like a week when, when people started to reach out and ask for assistance, uh, when the event organizers uh, started reaching out and asking for assistance got thrown together in a week and the fact that we could have so many people show up yeah. well-coordinated and articulated um, presence, you know, is, is really the only reason that these two ended up getting into it anyway. The fact that the media chose to highlight that uh, more than highlight, you know, community comes together, pride event threatened by fascists goes on anyway, you know, is just a, a real slap mm-hmm. in the um, and that's and yeah. that's what we're here, you know, is is to let people know, like, hey, we were there. We're going to continue to be there, and we're going to to continue to try to organize community members, everyday community members that don't know that they're anti-fascists. Right? It's to get them out there and get them into the streets so they can see that when we show up, we keep us safe. Mm, we keep us safe. True that. And y'all did amazing work. I mean, that was just such a beautiful, well coordinated response was just like the communication was so tight and just like i mean every possible fucking base was covered like i mean it was one of the one of the best efforts i've ever seen especially because of the delicate you know nature of that that event where it's a it's a family event you know a lot of uh people there supporting their their uh, queer kids and all that you know it's like you can't we couldn't be an intimidating presence out there open carrying and like doing the normal you know black block you had to like kind of you know and we had to be a total de-escalation mode, you know, trying to keep it nonviolent. So, you know, we have a coin six of multiple local local media trying to paint it out as, uh, you know, protesters of uh, of pride against, you know, counter protesters. It just makes it look like, you know, we're there because we want to fight with fucking Proud Boys and shit. And that's the exact opposite. We just want people to be able to, you know, enjoy the event, you know, and uh, support their whatever, you know, just uh, be there with their for queer solidarity for or support their, their queer family members. And yeah, it was, just, it, it was amazing. You know, y'all did just so, so impressive. So was everyone in this collective of anti-fascists well acquainted with each other at the time? What was the level of trust? I, I think as always, like, um, 
everybody knows everyone once we get on site, right? Once once we're all on the ground together, uh, it's kind of like, oh yeah, hey, it's you again. Um, but this was like several groups, uh, and and it was kind of weird because for that first week, only like comrades would speak to other vetted comrades, right? That they personally knew or personally seen on the ground, and that's pretty common. Right. Um, so we were we were relying on some of those channels uh, and back channels to relay information. Um, but it, it, trust is paramount, as always. You know, we place our lives in each other's hands at any action, any event. Um, and I, for one, fully trust all of the ones that that I organize with. So uh, if I've got somebody telling me, you know, no, this this group over here says X, Y, Z, then, you know, we, we take that into consideration, you know, and, and we take that as the truth. And that's a key, that's a key thing right there. That's a key point. Um, everybody that comes in is somebody that, I mean, not everybody, anybody can just refer somebody, you know, say, Oh, I got, I got a friend that or whatever. I got somebody who's interested. It has to be like a, an organizer or somebody who's, who's really been uh, a key component of the community to really prove themselves. You know, um, those people have bled, you know, uh, and put in a lot of work and, you know, uh, collected a lot of trauma <laughs> over this time. It's not easy work at all. It's um, it, it's hard, you know. It's a you have to persevere through a lot of stuff. You collect your trauma more than you quicker than you can process it. And a lot of a lot of times, it's very rewarding, you know. And it's and it's important. It's the only way I know how to be. But uh, yeah, like I don't know if there's ever a time I could fully trust anybody. I guess you know. Um, and especially where you know something like when your life is on the line, though. Um, like these are people I've been shoulder to shoulder with. These are people I had no choice but to trust when the shit hit the fan and when it hit the fan hard, you know, we were under threat of violence. Uh, they had my back uh, more than my own family and uh, lifelong friends ever have, you know, um, they showed up. Fucking, it, it's that, that, that shit is amazing. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the, I'm, I know about not, a, not everybody in the group until I, I see their eyes or I see like, you know, some kind of familiar familiarity. Uh, yeah. 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 Just like, you know, it's like right daddy's act is talking about you know you uh you recognize each other and get i was like okay yeah same people have been showing up it's like the people who who still show up are the people who give a fuck because everybody else all the cloud chasers and everything fell off a long time ago do you have any examples of specific obstacles to building trust or any exercises that you guys performed in um, helping to build trust between intergroup relations and groups of comrades that have yet to meet or um, organized in the past? Yeah, I think, I think like Lexi said, you know, that all comes from, from being on the ground together. Uh, and, and I love what you said, like, uh, seeing somebody's eyes, right? Um, cause let's be honest, like, uh, what we do is, is, is dangerous and, you know, keeping your identity, uh, a secret is, is kind of a must, right? Um, so it takes a while for everybody to build that trust, but once, once somebody sees you out there, and they see you showing up at uh, different places to different events, right? You're not just showing up to, to pull a bunch of rocks, you know, at a bunch of cops in front of a federal building, but you're showing up to, to other support events, right? You're showing up to memorials. You're showing up to, mm-hmm. you know, small gatherings of, you know, five to eight people screaming land back on a street corner. Somewhere. <laughs> you know, you tend to build that right. trust. Um, it's scary um, and it's always dangerous uh to to trust somebody that you that you don't know um but but each event that goes down successfully without you know uh an episode of extreme violence i think that's really when you start to trust your comrades more 
uh, because you know that, that you're out there for a reason. You're out there to provide community defense. You're out there to keep people safe. You know, you're not out there to just uh, antagonize and break a bunch of shit. And, and I think the more successful events you have without altercation, without incident, the, the quickly are to build that level of trust because now everybody knows what you're really about, right? Now you're not just about trying to take advantage of a situation to, to, to get into a fist fight. You know, now, now you're out there to make a difference in your community. Once you bleed for it, you know, once you have, uh, you know, taken enough, enough wounds for it, I think, you know, it, uh, yeah, it becomes apparent that, that you give a fuck enough to, to put yourself on the line and that, that kind of, kind of proves itself. What kind of threats were listed as potential factors in the lead up to the event, both uh, internal and external, that security had to prepare for? Well, I think, you know, first of all, you're talking about Oregon City. Um, and if you're not super familiar with it, um, it you know, they got Proud Boy bars, um, you know, uh, uh, Proud Boys, you know, uh, one of the, the Republican committee members out there in that county. Um mm-hmm. You know, and it's and it's I mean, shit, man, it's the Wild West. You know, a few years back, there was there was a meeting there and, and it got real ugly. You know, cops were marching anti-fascist through the bear mace that Proud Boys were spraying yeah. after trying to break the event up. Right. It was it was extremely violent. So uh, I think going into it, we were all aware of a couple of key things. You know, um, you know, they're going to be there. They're going to be armed. This is this is literally their turf. They don't mind showing up in full colors. They don't mind showing up and and causing violence there. They feel safe there. They feel comfortable there. Um, they know that, you know, like 90% of the time, the cops are going to have their back, you know, and paint everyone else to be the bad guys and the bad actors, you know, and the instigators. So I think that was a very real concern. Firearms are always a very real concern, um, you know, especially uh, especially in smaller towns like that. Um but, you know, we, we came out organized. We talked to the business owners in the area, right? Whether they were participating in the event or not, we talked to business owners, right? Like, hey, just so you know, like, we're, we're going to be there. We're going to be there to provide support. We're going to be there to, to provide protection for community members. We work closely with, you know, the event organizer as well um, to make sure they knew what to expect and, uh were given contact with the security company that the event organizer had hired prior to our involvement. Uh, and we reached out to them and we were like, look, you know, uh, here's what we can expect. Here's what we expect to happen. Here's how we plan on, you know, responding in case it happens. Um, but uh, most importantly, you know, the event was safe because there were no fucking cops, you know, and we told everybody involved as soon as we got involved, uh, you know, number one rule is is absolutely no police. You know, they're going to show up, they're going to screw everything up. You know, and you're going to have a you're going to have a problem. Um, but uh, I think I think everybody being made aware of the real dangers up front uh, and and talking through those things and everybody offering input and advice as we worked through that things was one of the main reasons this was so successful. Oh, I was just going to say, Oregon City does have a really really bad history as far as uh, hate groups go. They're out there in droves. You know, there's a reason. It had been the first Pride night. They've tried to have it before, and it got canceled because of these threats of violence, you know. And I believe, though, didn't the, uh, the original venue for the for the all-ages drag show, didn't they, didn't they have to change venues? I'm pretty yeah, sure they, they did. did. They, uh, they did. You remember? Yeah. They yeah. did. So uh, there, there were a couple of reasons. Um, uh, because so, of death threats. You know, uh, there, were, there were a lot of threats made. Um, 
But once that kind of got out, that the people were making threats, uh, the community, uh, you know, started started coming out of the woodwork. So they chose to, to relocate it to a larger venue. Um, and then that date is still coming up uh, here in, in the month of August. We should have Oregon City Pride Part 2 um, at a much larger venue on a much larger scale. So, but that's that's what these guys do. You know, uh, businesses were threatened with violence. Uh, uh, organizers were threatened with violence, both veiled and just outright spoken. Um, and that's that's honestly when when we had been reached out to, and and they said, hey, this is what's going on. Uh, we'd love for the community to come out and and support us and provide you know safety and defense. After Tiger, you know, after the Tiger Library got shut down, and threats of violence. They were, I mean, they they threatened. You know, called in all kinds of horrible, violent threats to a to a, a public library, to a children's story time event. You know, um, and that got they. I mean, that was disgusting. I mean, they decided to shut the event down, and that was that was really uh, a massive lapse in leadership and the worst way to deal with these kinds of things. I think because uh, it emboldens them, and they they closed the library for the whole day, and they showed up. The same people who made those threats showed up in the parking lot and had a flag wave, did a little fucking victory lap. And no one was going to let that happen with pride. Our people, you know, we're not going to let that happen with pride, you know, but they did have to change the venue. So what was the process of talking to businesses like in preparation for this event in a city that is such a hotbed for fascist activity? Well, it, so, so honestly, uh, that, that, that was my job. I got to do that. Right. Um, and it was, it was calling and just kind of feeling them out on the telephone. Um, now with the businesses that were directly related to this event that were going to be hosting it, um, it was just a simple phone call like, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is how I got your phone number. This is the password, right? Um, uh, and, uh, once, once they knew who we were, that they were super open to talking to us. Um, and then the other one was calling from a, a unlisted Google number and, you know, uh, when a business would answer the phone, we'd, you know, speak to the manager and, you know, ask them if they were participating in that, you know, goddamn devil pride. And if mm-hmm. they were like, nope, then we're like, okay, cool. We know to put you on a list. And if mm-hmm. they were like, hey, fuck you, you hung up on me, then we're like, all right, cool. Now we can reach out to these folks in a day or two later and let them know what's going on, you know, because obviously it seems like they need to be in the know. And, you know, we want full consent um, of the people who live in that community to be out there and provide defense in the fashion that, you know, it can be provided. On the day of the event, how did security look and feel in relation with the crowd of attendees? It was it was awesome. Right. It looked great. Uh, community members were approaching folk, uh, thanking them, uh, letting them know that they felt safer and that they're glad that they showed up. People saying, hey, I brought my daughters here. We weren't going to come. But, but seeing you folks here, uh, we can relax. We can we can have a good time. We can enjoy ourselves. I don't feel like I have to watch over my shoulder like something bad's going to happen. Um, you know, so they they had already obviously already hired a, a private security team um, prior to the anti-fascist involvement. But introductions were made previously, like I had already stated. Um, and it was made clear that there were no cops, that, that nobody here is looking to police event. We're just looking to keep people safe. And and that's what the teams out there on the ground did. It was great. So some of them were obvious. Some of them were not. Right. Some of them were obviously in gray blocks. Some of them were mingling in with the crowd. And some of them were on site and some of them were not on site. Um, just, you know, like 
like every other action. Um, but there was beautiful communication. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody got walked to the event safely, and everybody got walked home safely as well. Yeah, it was beautiful coordination for sure. You know, um, I'm at home during the event, covering it. You know, and and uh, just um, following comms, trying to do whatever I can. You know, and try to you know do the best I can with my um, my other you know my my side work. And um, they had, I mean, every every one of these goons. You know, they've been out here showing up to these been showing up to inside violence for years that we got we know everything basically every face that showed up every facet showed up we knew ahead of time exactly who was going to show and who wasn't and have files and information on all of them you know and that's uh that, that that's also key was any de-escalation needed uh the brawl that occurred between rcn and proud boys that was a good deal away from the event right yeah yo yo it was a long way away like a mile away um, so there wasn't so much need for de-escalation, right? Uh, we were obviously on site. They saw we were obviously on site. Um, and, and the two didn't, uh, didn't get a chance to go mingle. Uh, however, several community members were pretty curious, right? Like a lot of questions like, hey, why are you here? Uh, why are you armed? Uh, isn't that the job of the police? Why wouldn't we just call the police? Like all those questions came up. Um, but, you know, they were all assured and introduced to the concept of community action and what it means uh, for a community to protect itself without having any type of like hidden agenda or quota to meet. Right. Um, and and after explaining it, you know, the community members seemed relieved. And, and that's really, uh, I mean, in my opinion, that's a huge part of what community defense is about. Right. It's getting those people who who are already anti-fascists that don't know it, it's getting them on board, right? It's getting the fence sitters. It's getting, you know, the liberals. It's getting the people that believe everything's going to change with the ballot, right? It's getting those mm-hmm. people out. It's getting them to see it in real life and see what we keep us safe really, really means, right? Nobody was shot in the back, you know? Nobody was racially profiled, right? Mm-hmm. When we keep us safe, we keep us safe. And we're not out there policing. We weren't there to protect property. Yeah, we're out there to make sure, you know, nobody's building got beat up. You know, we're out there to protect our comrades and our community members. And Mm -hmm. every time you have an event like that where the community approaches you and and tries to engage and ask questions, you know, the best thing that we can do is 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 take that time to respond to them. And and honestly, it's the same tactics as de-escalation, right? It's it's the same eye contact. It's the same controlled breathing. It's the same going into that with a feeling of empathy and placing yourself in their shoes, right? Which is, hey, a bunch of people I don't know showed up. They've got masks. Maybe they've got guns. Maybe they've got long guns. And they're standing in front of my fucking favorite ice cream parlor. You know, I didn't ask for this. What's going on? And once you can kind of kind of put yourself in that situation, it's, it's a lot easier to respond to them. And it's a lot easier to break things down uh, and explain it. And if done correctly, uh, then that person goes home and, and they tell their partner or they tell their friends or they tell their kids or they tell their parents, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and the next time you show up and they see you, it's, it's less off-putting. It's less frightening for them, you know, and, and they're relieved, you know, they're glad you're there. Yeah, it don't take much. When people see it in action, um, it don't take much to quote unquote uh, radicalize people. Um, they, uh, yeah, once you, once you see it, and once people see it with their eyes compared to the way you know uh, police conduct themselves, people get on board pretty fucking quick with it. 
Uh, I would definitely agree with that. What was effective in keeping the fascists contained and removed from the event? I mean, honestly, it's 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 the same thing that has been keeping them away for for quite a while now, right? It's it's the sheer numbers of bodies that show up, right? They so many of these people, right? It's the same people. It's the same actors, right? Mm-hmm. On all sides, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We all know who everybody is, right? Um, and we all know what to expect. And, you know, when you get there first and you make a strong presence, you know, they're, they're really only left with two options, you know, which at this event was, you know, go somewhere else and have your event so you can film your propaganda and share it amongst your buddies, show what a good job you did. Or B, it's show up and start screaming and yelling at a bunch of people full of like moms and children and dads and shit. And they know that that's not going to be a good look for them. Just like we know that's not a good look for us, right? So uh, getting there early, having a strong presence, uh, and making your presence known, um, you know, is a really good way to to deter those types. Doesn't always work. Um, sometimes you have to do other things, right? Sometimes they show up and you need to walk them away. Um, but uh, in this case, it was it, it couldn't have gone better. It couldn't have gone smoother. Mm-hmm. And with the uh, week to put this whole thing together just speaks volumes about all of the people involved in, in organizing. Yeah, there has to be that fear. I think your both points you made are just so legit, you know, uh, so yeah, you have to have enough people out there to make them afraid to fuck around, you know, cause they know that when it comes to that, they're gonna, you know, they, they, they try to pull shit. They're pulling shit on a hundred fucking people, you know, or, you know, or more, whatever, you know, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, a lot fucking more than they got. And, uh, you know, and that combined with the social cost, you know, like you're talking about, you know, of what it looks like, how it's going to make them suffer if they're caught on camera, you know, doing something like that. You know, they could lose their job, fucks with their um, livelihood. And if that social cost isn't there, these are people who are that low, you know, they don't they don't give a fuck. You know, they're talking about really people who do not value human life, you know, value human beings. Um, the only people that look like them and share the same prejudices as them, you know. And uh, so, yeah, like, I mean. They are just scum of the earth motherfuckers, you know, in my opinion, you know, but uh, I think that's, that's pretty well documented, you know, uh, but yeah, like that's, it's that social costing. Is there anything in particular y'all learn from this experience that will be applied to the next community defense action? Oh yeah. Like, like every time, right. Absolutely. Every time it happens, um, something goes well, something can always maybe go a, a little bit better, but as for, you know, kind of, what the particulars are, um, we discuss them internally, uh, and we we move forward to the next one. Uh, it's great to acknowledge it, um, but just like any any shortcoming or mistake, right? Let's let's address it once. Let's figure out a way and let's move on. You know, but but overall, let's take away the fact that everybody showed up and everybody did their job, and you know, the community is safer and better because of. Yeah, you know. Um- Mainly, you said, you know, uh, every time you're going to learn something, there's always something that uh, some kind of valuable, you know, moment that you could take away and say there's something I could have done better or just some kind of lesson learned, you know, usually multiple. But um, seeing y'all in action just through the comms was, was incredible. But, you know, uh, it really, it, the, the main thing for me, you know, just just being stuck at home, my injury and everything like that was uh, and just kind of supporting best way I could from from a bit of a distance. Well, this community is going strong, you know, um, we're still here. 
you know, we're a stronger faction and we passionately give a fuck about protecting our comrades and our marginalized communities and with more passion than they could ever hate us. So we're closing in towards the end here. Before we go, I'd like to ask one last question of how would you describe to our listeners the importance for anti-fascists to organize in defense of marginalized communities? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what fascists do. Fascists attack marginalized communities. They villainize and then they prey upon them. And then when they're finished with one marginalized community, they come for another and then another. Right, and the splintering ally alliances and, and factions along the way is what they do. Uh, as anti-fascists, we recognize that. We know that. It's ingrained in us. And here in the Pacific Northwest, where we are predominantly white, uh, we do better to remind ourselves of that fact daily, right? And then use that as an opportunity to listen to our BIPOC comrades, to listen to their communities and take every opportunity that we have to dismantle the system of white supremacy that we benefit daily from, like both physically, financially, even socially. And this is crucially applied to like our cishet comrades as well. Uh, and it relates directly to our trans and queer comrades. So many can code switch at any time and not be immediately yeah. perceived as a threat by fascists. Our BIPOC, our visibly queer, our trans, our genderqueer comrades, they cannot. Um, and that's why it's so important to always keep privilege in mind and use it as a sword and a shield to insulate our most marginalized community members. Because once they're done with the most marginalized, uh, they're going to come for the next group until you're either one of them or you're eliminated. To paraphrase the old poem, first they came for the queers. Yep. So, yep. There it is. There it is. That's it right there. And because... I mean, yeah, you talk about a group of people who shout, shout, shout about freedom and their uh, personal rights being attacked, you know, and uh, not giving an inch, having their uh, rights or freedoms taken away. You know, they're really referring to their privilege and, you know, taking freedom and rights away from everybody else. That's not exactly like them or doesn't share the same prejudices or look like them. And because no one else will, you know, fuck the police. They exist to keep marginalized people oppressed. You know, um, the system works how it's supposed to, you know. They protect uh, white folks' property, you know, rich people's property, and they enforce racial and class segregation. They're the enforcers of that through the uh, era of mass incarceration and through just uh, the way the system is systemically set up. They're hand in glove with fascists. We've seen how many cops showed up to uh, January 6th. We've seen how much they cooperate with, uh, you know, fascists and proud boys here and here in our own city. The fucking FBI makes a report about how, how deeply they've infiltrated, white supremacists have infiltrated policing. You know, in this country, I don't know if they've really infiltrated it. I think that's how it's always been. But we're like, when it comes down to it, uh, we're really the only legitimate shield and groups like us, you know, other anti-fascist collectives. For sure. Before we close out tonight, Riot Dad, do you have any projects or events that you would like to plug before we close out? I've got some that are coming up. I've got I've got two that are going to be coming up uh, probably around the end of August. Uh, I'm not ready to disclose when and where yet. Um, but I'll reach out, uh, and, and you'll certainly hear that. So Lexi, you wrote an amazing and insightful piece with Susan Bartley called This is How We Heal about the movement for black lives in Portland in 2020. I found its conversational style really inspiring and thought it did a good job of highlighting the great and not so great things about the movement. Would you like to tell people a little bit about your piece and where they can find it? So I guess the overall idea was just to examine this idea or concept of trauma from ongoing protests since it is 
kind of its own specific kind of trauma and exhaustion that I think people are going to experience like a lot more commonly as the climate crisis deepens and we see politics getting way more polarized and overall instability just kind of seems to be on the rise. So we were kind of like exploring that idea after like a year and a half, two years on the ground, you know, straight through consistent protests of how we can cope from this kind of trauma and keep our extremely important equity movements going through the uh, exhaustion when you're collecting all these internal wounds and traumas like much faster than they can really be healed or processed. And since no one had really explored that topic before that either of us had seen um, we or ever really defined it in any kind of way, we felt it might be like a worthwhile pursuit. And through the course and timeline of the piece, you also get kind of like a firsthand look at some of what it looked like on the ground for us those two years and how well organized we were and how much organizing and planning and guts it just took from the black and indigenous women who led the movement and also the scars it left on us. Um, it got a great reception from our protest community. Thankfully, that was a good feeling. And other anti-fascist communities from all around the country and leftists of all sorts, you know, we're, uh, we're getting on it. It got a bunch of uh, different pub credits. If you want to check it out, though, the best one is published in the most recently released volume of Perspectives on Anarchist Theory, Volume 33, Transformations. Um, all the proceeds are to fund the good work that the Institute for Anarchist Studies is doing and for the causes they support in putting the Perspectives on Anarchist Theory journal out each year. This year's was called Volume 33, Transformation. It's a real potent read. It's great for anyone who's doing this kind of work or anyone who's interested in living more self-sustaining community-based lifestyles and wants to know how it's been done or how it's worked in the modern landscape and other ways to buck the establishment in general. Um, you can get it at anarchiststudies.org or at either of the Pals Books locations here in Portland. Or uh, you can holler at me at uh, Lexicon, L-E-X-Y-K-A-H-N, on Facebook or Instagram. And uh, I could probably link you up with like a, a free copy maybe even. So, yeah, don't don't be shy. Holler at me. Uh, and the name of the piece, Susan Inglada Bartley and I wrote together, is called This Is How We Heal. Um, and before we wrap up here, I just want to send lots of love and solidarity out to my co-author on this, Susie. Love you forever. And to her husband, Pedro, another dope writer and amazing comrade. Fucking powerhouse couple. And to everyone putting work in with us and you, man, mutual aid and abolish ice. To the best of the best, Scam and Bear Cub and Panda. Thanks for always putting up with me. Not getting too worn down behind all my bullshit. And of course, to Riot Daddy for being here with me today and making it work on short notice. Um, don't shoot Portland for laying so much of the groundwork. JFPK for keeping it 10 toes and all the other dope ass orgs, dope ass comrades, you know, who are out there putting it down. Um, and also, of course, to Hillary Lazar and Laura and Paul Messerman Glavin for all the work they put into that beautiful edit we talked about and, uh, for putting us in the incredible volume of, uh, perspectives this year. And thanks to our hosts, of course, and all the other comrades at Sabat Media for being so legit and for playing such an important role in what our movement needs to grow and become. And there's about another 10,000 comrades that I want to shout out right now, but that would take like a whole other podcast. So I'll turn it back over. It looks like it's time for another musical break. When we return, we will be talking to organizers from the upcoming Dual Power Gathering Midwest taking place in Chicago from August 17th to the 21st. For now, here is Gender Control by Rubella Ballet. Hit it. 
Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard.
Welcome back to Molotov Now. We're here with two organizers of the upcoming Dual Power Gathering Midwest, happening August 17th to 20th in Chicago. Would you all like to tell us your names, pronouns, and any relevant work you've been engaged in? Sure, I can start. My name's Adam. My pronouns are he, him. Um, Outside of helping to organize the Dual Power Gathering Midwest, um, I'm involved in some local mutual aid efforts like a mutual aid garden. I'm involved in helping start a mental health cooperative in Milwaukee. And yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm Myra Sheher, um, Cincinnati-based organizer. has recently been doing stuff with Food Not Bombs and just some general local mutual aid stuff, uh, including some things that will be more public as time goes on. Awesome. Uh, well, I got to talk to you after the recording about that healthcare collective. That sounds really awesome. All right. So we've talked about dual power before on this podcast, and I think our listeners are somewhat familiar with the concept. But I always like to ask everyone their definition because you always get so many different and amazing answers. So could I have you guys explain in your own words what dual power is? Yeah, sure. For, to me, dual power is... It's the building of different institutions to supplement the ones that are present under capitalism. Things like healthcare, food provisions, um, transportation, help, housing, anything that you need to survive and then so providing it from a radical perspective from one that's built from the ground up horizontally. And that can work as a supplement for what we have now. So we're not reliant on the systems that are hurting people. Yeah, I would I would add to that and say or or specify it as saying, you know, it's a method of prefiguration and um, it's a way of acting now to build the structures, the institutions, you know, something lasting, things that are lasting um, for people to meet their needs. You know, currently basic needs would be great, but even beyond that, ways of coming together that are truly liberatory and put our emotional need in a in a place where we can yeah collectively come together you know yeah i love that thanks for that um i've heard some people use the term counter power have you guys encountered that and do you think that that is a descriptive term yeah i've heard it i think um yeah it's another way of saying you know sort of what we're what we're aiming for. And I think it's a good way to say it because it really is like building up our, our power in opposition, but, but as a way of, of phasing out or making, making the current institutions that are so destructive to, to the ecosystem and ourselves, um, to make them moot and make them, you know, unnecessary. So yeah, counter power is is like the action of of what we're trying to build you know all right so counter power dual power prefigurative politics these all point towards actions that are building actual structures of power that are outside state control um is this why you guys decided to help organize this dpg midwest yeah definitely we i would say we a lot of the initial motivation for wanting to organize a DPG at all stem from trying to fill the void. There aren't many things like it. There are separate libertarian socialist 
themed conferences, you know, that happen all over. There's the one organized by Crime Think. There's more specific city-based ones that happen. But there's nothing that's quite tailored to dual power that is currently in place, except for the recent DPGs. And so that's kind of where the void to fill came in and why we wanted to do that to kind of live out our beliefs and to put into place the things that we want to see specifically in regards to dual power in regards to establishing counter power. Yeah, I think it's it's crucial, you know, and it definitely is part of what what excites me about the dual power gathering is, you know, it's essentially a way of bringing people together that that understand this idea even if they're not clear on the or maybe the origins or, you know, the specifics of it, um but understand like you know that prefiguration is the way to to get there and that they're they're building it in their own uh locales and so to me it's like super important that we all come together and try to meet each other or even you know be a point of connection for people looking to to take you know meaningful action in building a better world now so having gone to the recent DPG West, I found it to be a very powerful way to bring people together. And I found it really centered around this idea of shared values and that everyone there was there for a shared purpose and had similar norms and values. Uh, what are the values of DPG Midwest? And do you think it's beneficial to list positive values in addition to negative ones? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say the primary values that all of us organizing DPG generally share are centered around values of liberation. Things like meeting the needs of marginalized folk, um, opposing harmful structures and hierarchies that might be harming people, abolishing systems that are oppressing people. A general theme of liberation and meeting people where they're at and meeting them for what their needs are. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, all the antis are present as well, you know, anti-authoritarian, anti-colonial, anti-racist, you know, and the list goes on. But yeah, it really is about what we want to see the world become, what we're trying to, the potentials of, of the world that exists and how we bring them into being together and how we spread it. I think, yeah, there, you know, that's in some ways, I feel like, uh, DPG is in a way like a Skillshare, a giant Skillshare, but it's so much more than that. But a Skillshare in the sense that we're, we're informing each other the ways that people have struggled in different contexts and how to, how to spread those ideas, you know, specifically through, you know, a dual power lens, like building a solidarity economy, you know, building institutions that can integrate people from all walks of life into uh, participating in, in the process of governing their lives. So do you have a plan for how to delineate these values to the participants? Because I know for the DPG West, there was a zine that had some of the the, the cultural norms and the shared values listed out. And that was passed out at the beginning to participants. But I think based on some of the surveys that we've done in the aftermath, 
we could have done a better job at really going over those shared values up front. Do you guys have a plan of action around that? Adam, we'll leave that to you with the welcome committee. Sure, yeah. Um, it's something that has been on our minds, I will say for sure, especially I was at the uh, the first dual power gathering last year um, at the Dunes. And, you know, of all the amazing and wonderful things that happened, I think it was easy to see how um, like there was a need for for a concerted way of bringing people in and orienting them to the to the event. And while that has been on my mind for sure for the whole year, uh, we haven't, you know, there's so many other things that have taken precedence that we haven't really had too much time to focus on it. But that's not to say that in the next, you know, in the time left before the event happens, that that won't be uh, put into practice. I think what's amazing to me, and I saw it last year, I'm seeing it again this year for for the event, is is the way that people come together really close to the event. You know, um, for a bit there, I I will admit I was freaking out of it like oh what if no one no one uh hears about it and we have you know we've we've got the space and no one shows up and that sort of thing but i'm again reminded of how amazing it is when people find out just everyone comes together and makes amazing things happen so i'm looking forward to seeing what comes of orienting people to the space that's awesome well was there anything else, any other information you were able to glean from the first dual power in 2022 or anything that uh, you're going to keep in mind or would like other organizers to keep in mind moving forward? You know, I think for me personally, seeing how the kids that were there participated in their in the ways that they did, I think was really important and just very meaningful to everyone. I think, you know, I think a lot of people noticed it and commented on it and felt like the kids had a place that was special and important there uh, outside of just being, you know, supervised or watched, you know, like um, they participated. And I think that's something that I would like to see. You know, I'm not a parent, but I, I see the importance of having kids participate and people participate throughout the lifespan. And so that's something I would like to see be a big, a big focus as we go along, you know, among other things, but that's a big one. Could you elaborate more on how they participated? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, one of the ways was like, there was an art space, a dedicated art space that the kids really kind of like, um, I guess like took over and did their thing and, there were kids of different ages, so developmentally it, it looked different, um, the levels of participation and the kind. There was also, um, I think, you know, the, the camp was a giant circle, basically, under a canopy of trees, and uh, which was really beautiful and calming. And uh, there was a like a cart that uh, someone had brought, and people had brought different items to share with everyone. Like, there was books and pins and you know zines and the whole thing and some of the kids like took it upon themselves to to kind of go around and like share the goods with participants you know attendees and um it was just a great way of like helping people feel welcome in in the space and uh i think it was really important and it wasn't you know directed by any adults the kids just saw the need and 
filled it and it was it was awesome still we you know some of the organizers we we talk about how how great it was yeah that sounds really amazing are you collaborating with any other dpgs at all to, um in effort to share some of what you've learned from this uh past and upcoming uh dpgs in the midwest yes yeah, so we've actually received a bit of a primer on how the dpg west has gone to kind of inform us in our organizing efforts for the midwest and as for any other ongoing efforts we are currently we have been working with people and like sharing resources and whatnot but there aren't currently many other concurrent efforts at this time at least not that i'm aware of yeah i think there's a lot of uh potential for collaboration even beyond this point and i love to see what some of the dpg west people um are are doing with their experience and like they're really doing a great job of helping try to um, iterate and be a, a source of knowledge for people in other parts of the country or world even maybe that are down to to host a, a dual power gathering. And really, we want that. We want, you know, it's sort of um, built into the idea of dual power in general, but we want to like confederate we want to connect with other people in other places wanting to you know that are interested in building a point of contact like the dual power gathering yeah i think one of the most beautiful things to come out of the dual power gathering west for us was those connections that we made and how what was a temporary collective of people putting on this event has has grown into ongoing relationships and ongoing projects and like you said, trying to iterate this and uh, educate people how they could put on their own gathering in their own location. So you guys aren't aware of any DPG Easts being planned then? Not at the moment. I think uh, there had been some rumblings of a DPG mid-Atlantic, south southeast kind of thing. And there are a few people that seem to be still committed to that at some point, but nothing formal at this point. I mean, really, we are looking for other people that are down to do this in other places and, you know, want support with how to do that. And, you know, this Midwest will be the third the third attempt, you know, um, and I think between the group of us that have, have done it, you know, a lot of the organizers involved in DPG Midwest this year um, were peripherally involved last year or even new to organizing the dual power gathering. Uh, there's only one organizer that was involved um, last year. And so that was, you know, there the whole time last year. So we're also interested in bringing in people that are, are new to it a little bit or like, you know, may not necessarily know all the ins and outs, but really want to see something like this happen where they're at. So it doesn't have to be even like a major city or a major thoroughfare, you know, it could be anywhere. So for our listeners, uh, where might you direct them if they're wanting to host their own DPG style of event in their own area if uh, they haven't connected yet with various DPG organizers? I direct them to join our Discord, to join our uh, communication channels and to connect with us so that we can help folk get on their feet with this. No sense in reinventing the wheel, so... We can help folks learn, help folks figure out what they need to do. Even if you've never done something like this before and you're interested in doing it, 
we ask, come on and join us. We'd love to have you and love to get connected. What can people who want to participate do to get more involved? Is there a website or an email that they can contact? Yes. So you can find us on our website. It is dpgmidwest.org. And from there, you can find more information on how to RSVP with via the Open Collective, and that'll give you access to the Discord if you do. You can also find us on socials there. At the bottom of the website, you'll find links to our um, Mastodon, to our Instagram, to our email. If you don't want to get connected to read a Discord, email, something like that works better for you. Shoot us an email, shoot us an Instagram message, and then we can work with you on whatever works best for you. And what kind of help is still needed at this point? Essentially, we're open to help with anything. Um, we have a lot of great folk working with us, but we definitely will not turn down more hands to help us out with things. Um, anything like, say, food preparation, supply gathering, transportation, logistics, or smaller things like helping to coordinate meetings, helping coordinate public speaking to like folk who might not necessarily want to organize, but might be interested in participating. Uh, people who are knowledge in medical stuff, people who have interesting skills they want to share and bring to the gathering. That's also completely welcome. Um, essentially anything at all that you think might be relevant. If you have the thought, hmm, this might be something that could be good for the gathering or any sort of Skillshare event, then come on and join. We would love to have you. So there's ways for people to plug in on the back end and help organize the actual event, as well as showing up on the day of and throwing their own session on the board. Yes, absolutely. We want the gathering to essentially be not just a way for people to get involved with the stuff at the main event, but also to kind of help teach people the ropes of organizing something like this and the more behind-the-scenes aspect of it. A lot of us, myself included, are pretty new to organizing something like this. I was involved a bit with last year's gathering with organizing it, but I've stepped up my capacity a bit more at this one, and it's definitely a new set of hurdles. But the folk I've been working with, they've everyone's been amazing and incredibly helpful and has just been offering great guidance and great assistance with getting everything figured out. And I think we would love, I would love to offer the same to anyone else who comes in and wants to get involved. We, we have full connected with us who have not ever done something like this before. Some people who have connected to us have no real experience with organizing and they're still able to come out of it, having helped with it, having felt like they contributed a good part of it and made it something their own. So that's something we prioritize heavily. I think, too, it might be good to say that, you know, we want to do this. And I guess, well, I could speak for myself, but I assume that this is true for all the organizers and, and people that have attended last year's event and probably uh, Wes. But we want to see this happen annually, if not more more often than that. We want to find ways of staying in touch as well in between. Um, but, you know, I want I would want this to be something that people can count on as happening and they can get involved as as soon as they would like you know they know it's going to pick up they can say well yeah I'm, I'm interested in helping next year happen and maybe be bigger or more like the the iterations we were talking about like iterate in different ways you know it's a small group of us and we can't think of everything or do everything on our own which is you know why it's so uh magical really when 
things start to get closer to the events and people start popping up and are like, oh, I have that or, oh, have you thought about this? You know, it's just, it's really cool. So if people can count on it, it would, it would be great to have people involved as early as possible and as often as possible. Yeah, I think it's a really great format for bringing people in um, and could be made more effective if it was regular. Y'all have a really fruitful mini documentary on the DPG 2022 on the YouTube channel. Why is it important to reflect and learn from previous years? Yeah, I think that's how how we grow. That reflection is so important. You know, I, I can speak for myself and say that when I when I saw those interviews and, you know, just saw what what it looked like from some of the people that had gone to the event. It just, it, I think, inspired me again to really put extra effort into making this year happen and make it, make it great. So I think it, it can serve as inspiration. It can, you know, it's kind of like a time capsule in that, you know, there's lessons as well to be drawn from the things people are saying in the moment, you know, as they're experiencing it, that has been really helpful. So yeah, I think it's, it's a great, way of of learning and growing so i know one of the stated goals for dpg west in the zine was to promote the indigenous leadership and so we had a couple sessions around that topic um what how important is the indigenous leadership to dpg midwest extremely important we want to prioritize indigenous voices in our organizing efforts, and especially considering we are living on colonized land, it is incredibly important for Indigenous voices to be present and active, and for us to do our work in boosting them. So we want to invite specifically to more Indigenous voices to join join us and work with us, because they're, I think that personally, we definitely could use some more indigenous folk to come on board and help help out and kind of give a perspective that is sorely needed. Have you guys made any invitations to the local tribes or anything like that? Adam, I believe you might know. Um, I would say um, we haven't this year. We've kind of like, you know, been focused so much on um, the logistics of it all. And really, I think this year, you know, we want to thinking of the welcoming committee, part of what I kind of envision is that when people are coming up and we're introducing them to the events that we're, we're asking, you know, their interest in, in being involved. And of course, um, indigenous BIPOC folks are encouraged, especially to participate. And I know that there were a lot of efforts made in the organizing of last year's event to really involve BIPOC folks and it was kind of a hit or miss kind of thing. Um, and, and this year it, it just has kind of, yeah, been, it's been hard to get people involved in general, I would say. So the few of us that were committed, we really kind of doubled down on that and really just wanted to see this come to be and hope to get in, get more people involved, especially, like I said, BIPOC folks, um, that may show up for sure. It definitely does seem to be a hard year for getting people involved. So how do y'all think that we can utilize the momentum of this DPG 
to replicate regional breakouts or organize the next one? I think that a lot of the folk who might be attending or would be able to kind of gather a lot of information from the gathering and use that to kind of facilitate their own organizing efforts elsewhere and be able to help them. I think that we can kind of work each specific gathering as a jumping off point for more and more, for more and more gatherings to emerge. I think maybe there's opportunity to, to even at the gathering, perhaps have a sort of skill share about organizing dual power gatherings. And, you know, with the, the kind of like regional focus of this event, even though we're, we're letting people know that you don't have to live in the Midwest to participate, um, that everyone is welcome. Um, we do, you know, I, I would imagine a lot of the folks that are going to show up are probably in, in a close distance. We luckily had, you know, some folks from Asheville, um, attend last year's event. And so good connections were made, connections were strengthened. And so that kind of hopefully will give way to, you know, uh, a Southeast mid Atlantic event at some point. But yeah, hopefully, you know, people that are interested in bringing it into their locale, again, even if it's like, you know, uh, a, a city away, you know what I mean? Like any, anywhere that people are looking to do this, I think it's a great idea. Even if there are multiples throughout the year, it doesn't have to be just one or two, you know, we can, we can have, you know, a lot of them. And I think that would be excellent. Well, one thing that I think we all kind of agreed on from the DPG West was that we should have had a bigger closing ceremony of some sort. So I hope that y'all can implement that learned experience into this one and have some sort of send off party or big campfire at the end of it all to hand out those contacts and, and make those connections. Yeah, definitely. I think that's going to be a priority for sure. It really is like welcoming people in and, and seeing people out. It's, it's like hosting it is really the idea. And yeah, there is uh, a big bonfire area um, at the campsite that we chose. And so, yeah, uh, maybe closing out with a, a big bonfire and a movie, uh, cause we're talking about having a movie showing of some kind. Hopefully that will be a big part of it. I think also, again, one of the things that we were talking about earlier about the documentary, uh, it's really important for me. I would, I was one of two people that helped make that documentary happen. And I think it, it was, I don't know, it was a really important experience for me. And I want to, I'm definitely going to set up like a, like an interview station at the event. That's my idea right now and try to capture people's thoughts and feelings about the experience as it's happening and create sort of a, an audio capsule of it. And uh, I think someone else that's organizing is going to bring a video camera. And so there will be some kind of retrospective from this event too, I think, I hope. That's a great idea. I know as a media collective, we would have brought some recording equipment if we had felt like it wouldn't have made us look like cops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But next time we will for sure, because that's a really great idea. I know it's, it's important to us, obviously to, to document the movement. And so 
you know, we've been honored to, to document this little piece of history as it's unfolded with this dual power gathering West and now moving forward to, to the new projects that it births. Yeah, I can speak for myself and say, you know, out of BPG last year, you know, it kind of spawned several organizing projects that I've been involved with, some of which I mentioned at the start, but even, you know, out of the, the documenting the event, um, I had made a, made a connection with another attendee and we're, we're looking to also kind of have a podcast and capture, we said emerging elders to do a, a kind of story core for, for, uh, anarchists more or less and like really capture like older radicals, their experiences and share them around, which I think is really important. But yeah, dual power gathering, I think has been a great way to make connections with other radicals looking to do organizing of different kinds. And I think it can do that for, for others, you know. So what sort of sessions would y'all like to see happen? Me personally, I want to see things focused on practical skills, um, first aid, CPR, things like lockpicking, things like uh, mechanic work, um, technical stuff related to coding, carpentry. I know it's not technical, but um, also electrician work. Basically anything that could be practical in day-to-day life, I'm a very big proponent of. Um, bushcraft especially, too. I'm not nearly qualified enough to give <laughs> uh, in seminars and sessions on any of these myself, but I definitely would love to learn more. For me, I think it's uh, discussing different different strategies for social change, you know, dual power within, I think, the dual power um, uh, idea and like what that looks like in practice in different ways, ways that people are putting dual power into practice, basically. I'm really interested also in like community land trusts and knowing how that works and, um, you know, I'm really interested in the work of Cooperation Jackson, Cooperation Milwaukee, all the cooperations I feel like are doing amazing and important work. Um, so I want to I want to talk with people who are interested in making that happen and um, how they're doing it. I know that there there likely will be at least one or more people, um, hopefully more uh, from Cooperation Milwaukee that attend. So yeah, just. Different. I want to hear different experiences, like what people are up to, what they feel like is working, how we can connect and stay connected and support each other's work as much as possible. Well, if it ends up looking like anything like what you guys just described, it sounds like it's going to be really fun. I guess that just leaves one last question. In the advice of sages of old, will there be dancing? Because if I can't dance, I don't want your revolution. There will absolutely be dancing. Hell Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, we already got our eyes on a PA or two, so it's going to happen. We just need a DJ. That's all, you know? And, I mean, as long as there's music, I'm sure there will be dancing. Good, because we got teased with a Maypole dance twice at DPG West and it never materialized, so. Uh, ripped off. <laughs> yeah. All right, Not well, is there anything else that you guys want to bring up or cover? Uh, the only thing I want to say, it's just a message to anyone who might have thoughts, questions, comments, or concerns for us. If there's anything we can be doing better, if there's anything we can be doing to improve our organizing methods or actions, let us know. Let us know what we can do better. 
Um, I know specifically one topic that came up that's been on my mind since it was asked was the question on Indigenous participation. And I think that's something I'm going to personally try to see that we do better. Um, if there's anything else that folk think we need improvement on, please let us know. Yeah, I think if you're hearing this before the event, please come. We would love to have you. If you're hearing this after the event, there will be another. So get involved. Show up. You know, be as involved as you like, but come be involved. I think everyone has something to contribute and everything, it it only happens with everyone's participation. DPG will not be super mega excellent unless we all put a bit of ourselves in it. Awesome. Well, that dedication to growth through valuing feedback, I think is really important. I appreciate that. I appreciate y'all's time and coming on the podcast to talk with us today. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. This was awesome. Yes, thank you so much. This was great. We hope you enjoyed this episode about the collective challenges being faced by marginalized communities and the possible paths forward for organizers wanting to build power structures answerable to those communities. We don't know what the future holds. Collapse seems imminent, but we won't be holding our breath. We will be engaging in the labor necessary to any future survival of human culture. From the environment to the economic system to our very civilization, everything seems poised to crumble in the coming years. While this collapse happens, it is our responsibility as rebels to find each other in the rubble and to make our way towards the new world we are building together. By making our own structures outside of the purview of the state, we can ensure stability going forward. The morally bankrupt political machine that keeps people focused on electoral solutions is losing faith every cycle, and we need to be there, ready and able to onboard the disaffected and alienated ex-voters who have realized the futility in appealing to hierarchies for order or institutions built on brutality for justice. We need to be training ourselves on how to create, learn, love, and live together in these moments of gathering that present themselves from time to time. By making these gatherings regular enough for people to plug in, we can add to the ranks of those who have that direct first-hand experience with liberation. Once someone tastes that, there's no going back. So do what you can to make it to the next gathering near you, or consider setting up your own. Reach out for help and guidance from those who have organized previous ones. And remember that the fire that burns also fertilizes. From the ashes, new growth buds. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you'd like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. We would like to give a shout out to our friends at Sabotage Noise Productions for putting on awesome benefit shows in support of the movement, including one for the Black Flower Collective, and for all around being awesome people. The South Florida Anti-Repression Committee, who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. 
To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social. That's K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A dot social. And follow us and other online activists on decentralized, federated internet. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is holding a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash CR Mutual Aid Net. The communique is looking for artists and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry. Sabotage Noise Productions will be throwing a benefit concert at The Chuck in Bremerton to support Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network this July 20th at 8pm. Check out Facebook for more info. As reported previously, Katie Hussey is still struggling in the wake of harassment by Dayton police that has cost her her employment and housing. Luckily, the charges have been dropped, but she has lost everything because of this and still faces an uphill battle in getting back on her feet. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to help them during this time. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collective Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. Oh, no, 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 no.